0: Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio, I'm Dan Skinner. A few months ago, cost-benefit analysis guru Rob Moore graced us with his presence on the show to talk about the imminent arrival of sports betting here in Ohio. I learned a lot from Rob in that discussion, as I always do, and it got my mind going on the relationship between sports culture and health. When I watch baseball, and I admit I watch a lot of it, I'm constantly pulled in different directions by the social commentary in my mind. Mostly because of all the advertising, including oodles of healthcare advertising, but also just because so much of what happens in sports, if you watch it closely enough, is entangled with the pressing social and cultural questions of our day. You see that clearly with the Colin Kaepernick situation most famously, but that's just the tip of the proverbial iceberg, which is something I don't need to tell baseball fans in Ohio, especially those in Cleveland. So I was super stoked when I learned that my favorite baseball writer, Craig Calcaterra, who just happens to be an Ohio guy, was coming out with a book on sports fandom published by one of my favorite publishers, Belt Publishing out of Cleveland. I snatched up the book, read it in a day, and wrote to Craig to see if he'd come and talk with us. I was thrilled when he agreed that we were able to meet up at the WCBE studios for our conversation made it all that much more special. Before turning to my conversation with Craig, though, just a reminder to please rate this episode in your podcast app, and if you want to help us to make the show sustainable, we'd really appreciate your becoming a Patreon for just $3 a month. You can do that by following the links at prognosisohio.com. While we'd love for you to become a Patreon, it's also just really helpful to us if listeners share episodes with friends, colleagues, and family on social media and elsewhere. Okay, here's my conversation with Craig Calcaterra about his new book, Rethinking Fandom published by Belt Publishing. Hey, Craig, thanks so much for being on the
1: show. Thanks for having me here.
0: So so to start, it, it might not be obvious why at first, why I wanted to talk about this book on a show about health and healthcare, maybe to (laughs) listeners, have a a baseball writer, a sports expert on. But I think there are a lot of different points of convergence, at least as I read the book. Maybe I read everything as a public health person does. At
1: at a very basic level, I've been told that this book is uh, a good mental health self-help book for sports fans who all of us are kind of insane and unwell (laughs) in certain ways anyway, so maybe we can make that connection.
0: Okay, but you do use the words healthy and unhealthy <laughs> and you know and and I kept thinking are we talk are these being used as metaphors and I was looking for like the real health uh you know not re- not that metaphors aren't real but you know how do you think about like just that big question of are you actually sort of diagnosing an, a problem in our society
1: i I think so I don't know that I'm qualified to diagnose it um that doesn't stop me from trying uh i I think there is definitely a huge problem with how we sort of appreciate or don't appreciate sports in this country. I I even think that at times, as we are sitting here right now in Columbus, Ohio, home of the Ohio State Buckeyes, uh, no people or maybe ourselves have been in a situation where we actually feel sick based on the outcome of a sporting event. There is something really, really primal and basic about sports that can be wonderful, can be exuberant, but can also be a real big drag. And uh, I, I don't think calling it health is overstating it.
0: Yeah, I've heard people say, uh, you know, uh, my team is making me sick to my stomach or, yeah. you know, I'm going to puke, you know, <laughs> like, so there is a kind of psychosomatic reaction
1: at a minimum. And it, it changes our behaviors. Uh, I, you know, I mentioned there's a chapter in the book where I talk about being an Ohio State fan and then not being an Ohio State fan. And uh, there was a time when I was such an obsessive Ohio State fan, and I don't think I was even bad for this city. Um where if a real bad gut punch loss happened, I'd, I'd kind of feel miserable for a day. And I think it felt like a sickness. Uh, there's there's a lot going on with that sort of thing. And I know that there are fans that are passionate about their hockey team, their basketball team, whatever it is, that get that same feeling. I've heard it all the time.
0: So, you know, as you show in the book, and it's it's kind of Obvious on its face, but you get into a lot of really interesting details about the kind of irrational emotional investments that are underlaying sports, and that's not even a bad thing necessarily. Like it's fun that there's this kind of thing where people let loose and sort of get into it. But where's the line for you?
1: You know, for me, it's just a gut check, right? When I don't feel like I'm having fun anymore, when it feels like a chore, uh, or when it feels like I'm just not getting the same return from sports that I would if, if good things happen. Um, and, and that's one thing that I want to communicate to people about this book is um, I'm not telling you not to be a sports fan, and I'm not telling you how to be a sports fan. I'm telling you that you need to be a sports fan who enjoys what you're doing and what you're watching. Um, I think the line for everybody is, is, if it's not fun for you, if it's not giving you the benefits that any other sort of form of entertainment gives you— Don't do it. Back up. Take a step back. If we were watching movies that just pissed us off all the time... We'd probably stop watching those movies and we'd do something else. Why don't we do the same thing with sports?
0: Well, people seem like they they almost feel like they're stuck in an unhealthy relationship, you know, like oh, they're yeah. bound to this team. I mean, you know, I'm a New Yorker originally, but moving here, I heard about the Cleveland Browns, and I was immediately attracted to this idea of like losing teams, <laughs> you know, that Ohioans were kind of joking about. But then as I got into it a little bit more, um, you know, I had to make other decisions about where my allegiance is when I'm still with the Mets in baseball, but... You know, I see a lot of folks who just, they seem like they feel stuck, like they have to watch and they don't have to watch, but it, it is having a negative effect on them. Also, there's things like binge drinking. There's all sorts of like ancillary things that are going on around it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really easy to go from, I'm having fun, this is great, go team, to, oh my God, I'm making myself sick and unhappy, and yeah, I'm drinking too much. I mean, it's it's a weird line, right? I get it. And I don't want to just say that sports are a negative thing because I don't think they are. I think on the whole, sports are a net positive. And I think there are a bunch of studies that have sort of borne this out, that having a certain level of sports fandom tends to correlate well with with uh, you know, good mental health and optimism and, and other healthy things because there is a sense of community you get. And there is uh, something external you're focusing on instead of just internalizing everything. Um, there, there's good stuff that happens because of that. Uh, but, but yeah, you could you could take it too far, and I, I think your Cleveland example is a great one. I've been in Ohio for over thirty years now, and um, the the idea of we have this shared thing um, is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, at thirty years though of it being absolutely miserable, and in one point in the nineties it was gone, and then it came back, and then it continued to be miserable. I mean, there are there are extremes here. I think we can't go beyond. Right.
0: Right. <laughs> One of the things I really love about the book, uh, you know, and in a way, the book, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a long book. So you're kind of and you say at a bunch of points, like I could give you 20 other examples of this or that. And there's this sense that you're kind of looking at the broad picture with lots of examples from Ohio because you're an Ohioan yourself. So uh, which is great. But, you know, there's also a critique, as I read it as a political scientist, uh, of democracy, of our kind of political systems, right? Uh, One of the most compelling parts of the book for me is when you talk about the fleecing of taxpayers to support the building and the subsidization of of stadiums. Um, And these owners could pay for these things themselves, but there's this whole other part around it. I, I, I guess I'm just wondering, you know, do you, to that metaphor of health, Is there also a way in which sports are undermining those kinds of democratic fabrics in our society?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. No secret to anyone who reads seven pages of this book or follows me on social media or knows anything about my work. I, I am a pretty hard lefty, but I also get really, really upset about, you know, wasteful spending when it comes to billionaires everything gets thrown out the window when it comes to professional sports in politics. Anyone who is a fiscal conservative automatically stops being a fiscal conservative. Everybody uh, just lines up behind the team in some very strange, almost militaristic kind of loyalty thing of that they're ours and it doesn't matter what we do. There are a million ways to create public policy. I don't presume to have a monopoly on wisdom when it comes to that. But when everybody is throwing out all sorts of reason because, oh, let's give the billionaire a $2 billion dollar stadium uh, and, and worry about any of the consequences later, that just really grinds my gears. And it's one that happens over and over again. And, and while it's a, a kind of a narrow thing to just talk about you know public subsidies for stadiums, I mean, there are people that write books about that in academia, and that's all they do. Um, for me, I think there's a larger piece to it, and it's about what we, what we value and and what we're willing to do as a society. We're willing to bend over backwards for professional sports and the glorification of professional sports, we're willing to do almost nothing for anything else. And I just think that's evidence of a really sick society.
0: I mean, there's a kind of assumption, you know, it's not like if we, you know, didn't do these bailouts or these subsidies for stadiums and sports teams in general, that that money would like magically go to public health. Like Governor DeWine at the beginning of the pandemic said, you know, we just we're realizing that we just haven't invested enough in public health. And I'm thinking, Wow, I, I've known people for the last twenty years of my life who've been saying that for a long time. Like this is not, you know, I'm glad glad you're here, Governor, but like, you know, that critique's already been out there. So, you know, there there is a question that like this is a evidence of what we value vis-a-vis other things that we don't pay for public health, we don't want to pay for, you know, I don't know roads or clean water or whatever. But like we will, you know, give the Browns money for their stadium and put um, First Ener- a First Energy branding logo on it. And there's a major scandal around that. <laughs> I mean, there, there's so many political elements, but these are choices.
1: Oh, yeah. I, you know, I think it was actually Biden who said it back when he was a senator. His quote was, show me your budget and I'll show you what you value. And uh, that works against him too in a lot of ways, but it, <laughs> it definitely is a true statement. And it that's what our values are. In, in New York State, they just approved something like a billion point two dollars or something like that for the Buffalo bills. Uh, I think 750 million of it is coming from the state of New York. The same week that they appropriated that money, they cut public mental health services by 750 million dollars, or maybe it was family services. I don't think that's a one to one, but it definitely is telling.
0: Yeah. In a city like Buffalo, which has had a lot of problems, I mean, in some ways, it's like similar to what Cleveland's gone through and a lot of those other so-called rust belt areas um so it's not like they can afford to be making these kinds of decisions at all
1: no but they do and you know it's, it's it and it gets back to the appeal of of sports professional sports in buffalo you do it because not that it's a good use of money not that we can show it makes a, a good return for the public or anything like that you do it because you can stand up in a couple of years and say, I saved the bills. Yeah, it begs the question, were they really in peril? Were they going to go anywhere? But uh, that's the appeal of, it's almost like putting a flag next to yourself in a, in a political ad. If you could have the team's logo, there's almost nothing more powerful, I think, in American society than, than a sports logo uh, when it comes to identity and, and, and passion and feelings and things. Um, and if you can align yourself with that, you're going to do well. And that's basically why it happens.
0: You also, of course, and you kind of have to, you got into the the Colin Kaepernick situation and talked a little bit about the, the symbols of the patriotism and the kind of pay for patriotism thing that goes on in, in American sports. But also it occurred to me, this is another area where there's a clear public health issue. I mean, municipalities all around Ohio, including where I live in Grandview, have declared racism a public health crisis. And then they quickly did nothing about it, but that's a separate... <laughs> Matter, you know, in this way, I mean, do you do you see, you know, particularly with, you know, you kind of go through the differences of the sports like Adam Silver and the NBA, really pretty good on this issue over time has gotten better in terms of expression and, you know, talking about things like structural racism, the NFL, not so much. And we know that story. But how do you see that as well? I mean, is this is this part of the critique of also like how it sort of keeps us from engaging in things like addressing racism?
1: I think, yeah, I think it certainly does. It it muddies the waters a lot. Um, I I think we almost, even though in the book, I I do advocate for, as a sports fan, allowing your Political passions or your social issues that that are important to you help guide your fandom. If you're if you're lost on any other uh, measure, uh, it's you know root for a player who who is doing good works in the community. If you're a baseball fan, you know Sean Doolittle is a, a lefty reliever who's barely hanging on, but he's also a huge vocal activist for a lot of causes I agree with. So I like I root for Sean Doolittle even though he has no bearing whatsoever on the teams I root for. Um, I think that's okay. What I think happens, though, in sports is we we look too much to sports as a proxy for what the attitudes of the nation are. Um, during the, the George Floyd protests and, and, and everything, it was amazing how much ink was spilled talking about, well, what's Major League Baseball doing to react to that? How's the NFL going to react to that? I'm like, those are just parts of society. And then you also have to look at what really motivates these leagues and the actors in the leagues. I, I applaud the NBA and Silver for for being forward on a lot of things, but at the same time, he's sort of following what the stars in the league want. Right. He, you know, Adam Silver's not going to be there uh, leading the charge, I don't think, but he also knows that his big marketable stars think that's important, so he has to think it's important. Whereas in the NFL, uh, if, if you are uh, Goodell and you're in charge of things, you know that you have a bunch of fans that really don't much care for black athletes protesting racism. Uh, so you try to put that in in the back burner, you try to tamp it down a little bit. And then in Major League Baseball, you know, it's a very conservative sport with very older conservative fans. And you almost try to eliminate that from the conversation. These are things that are market driven more than they are ideologically driven. I think players, individual players have a lot of passion that they they act on. But you got to be careful in saying things like, the NBA is great on racism, or yeah. the NFL is terrible on it. Yeah, yes and no, but it, at the end of the day, day I think they're just talking about you know what's going to be good for them.
0: Yeah, I had a family member who you know stopped watching the NFL during the year and kind of told me at one point, I really stuck it to them. I'm like, that's
1: yeah, they that, care. That, that's good, really good, good <laughs> activism there, you
0: know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So there are, of course, also kind of more literal health issues that sports raise for us, and you talk about a bunch of them in the book. There's the performing, han- uh, performance-enhancing drug question. Um, you also talk about the damaging effects such as concussions, which you say, you know, there's been some progress made there, but still not not nearly enough. Um, so, so how do you put the physical and perhaps mental damage to players themselves into this broader conversation about how fans relate to sports? Uh,
1: for me, I stopped being a football fan, a professional football fan in the 90s, when it just started to dawn on me when I was in my 20s of just how broken these bodies are coming out of coming out of the NFL and just how disposable the players were and how they seem like gladiators, really. And, mm-hmm. um, a a player who has put his entire life into his career gets one injury and he's cast aside and uh, in certain cases not even taken care of. That was hard for me to reconcile. I know a lot of people do. Um, Obviously, the NFL is more popular than it's ever been. Tons of people are either ignoring it or reconciling it somehow.
0: Despite my uncle's attempts to take it down by not watching.
1: Somehow he failed in that. I don't know. (laughs) You know, the blow against the empire didn't really work. But um, I I think it all comes back to, again, what can you tolerate? What can you be good with? When I go to bed at night, I have to make sure I'm comfortable with myself. and. I wasn't comfortable with myself getting a whole day's enjoyment and uh, having my identity sort of coincide with a, a, an operation that just broke people's bodies and cast them aside. That was a problem for me. So I couldn't be an NFL fan anymore. Right. I think everybody has a different judgment they can make on that. And again, I'm not going to tell you that my my assessment on that is is everything. But I think it's a part of being a fan that fans responsibly need to think about they need to think of the players as human beings and not just you know avatars or or like i said gladiators That, that you know i could watch baseball because yeah guys get hurt there but it's not quite the same deal you know basketball same kind of a deal it's okay for me soccer same deal but man watching people get broken up in football and to some extent hockey is really really hard
0: and by the way, just to be clear, a lot of those soccer players are faking it, right? That's, oh, uh, oh, absolutely.
1: The, there, there is a <laughs> there is a, a complete difference in reaction between the the level of pain they are expressing and the actual injury they have occurred. I saw. It, I just started watching soccer this year. I mentioned this in the in the afterward of the book. Uh, I, I just started watching English soccer, but mm-hmm. last August, and I've become a soccer fan because I don't know, I have nothing else to do with my time, and. Uh, the third or fourth week of the season there's this young player for Liverpool who broke his ankle in like just this horrible horrible way like season ended and it was just ugly and nasty and his reaction to the field was just kind of like oh man this stinks and they pulled him off and then you know Ronaldo or something gets knocked in the elbow and he's screaming and howling to the heavens I think there's something to be found out of that
0: Yeah, you know, in terms of drawing the line, though, so, I mean, you're sitting here wearing a Dodgers hat. We have the Trevor Bauer situation <laughs> with, you know, domestic violence or, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the charges are. And we have a lot of people here in Ohio or, who are claiming on Twitter and elsewhere that they're done with the Browns because of their new quarterback. What's his name?
1: Uh, uh, Deshaun Watson.
0: Right. So, you know, I've seen this before with the, the I'm done with them narrative and then. You know, it's a good time. It's off-season. By the time the season rolls around, all the good feelings come back, training camp. You know. You'll be back. Yeah. I mean, how many of these people I mean, have you seen over your years of, of watching sports closely, people
1: actually cut? I, I have seen people cut things out. And like I said, I've cut certain things out, but not because of that. I, I really don't think anyone who says, oh, they signed that guy and he's a piece of crap and I'm never going to root for that team again, that never holds. Yeah. Um, I think, and this is another argument that I make here, is we need to decouple our fandom from the team uh, as everything. Um, I'm wearing a Dodgers hat. I'm, I'm a kind of a Dodgers fan. I'm, my baseball fandom has shifted a lot over the last several years. Um, but I generally root for the Dodgers these days. And when they signed Trevor Bauer, and before any of those charges with the sexual assault and everything it came out, I, I really thought he was a piece of garbage just because of the way he sort of carries himself on social media and everything else. I said, you know what? I hope the Dodgers win four out of every five games and every Trevor Bauer start, he gets shelled. <laughs> that, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. We, we have this idea that we can't root against or criticize our own team or players on the team. You have to be all for it or all against it. That is garbage. We don't do that in almost anything else in life. But in sports, we have this idea you either got to be 100% for the team or 100% against it and you can't criticize the logo. I'm wearing the Dodgers hat, but for most of my life, I was an Atlanta Braves fan. I, one of the many reasons why I stopped being an Atlanta Braves fan is I just couldn't get cool with the team using Native American iconography, the Tomahawk Chop stuff. It was just, it was just crap. And for years, I'm a fairly prominent Atlanta Braves fan. Like on baseball, I was the only baseball media person, I think, in the national media who would talk about his rooting interests. So I was identified as a Braves fan. I would get more crap from other Braves fans because I would say things about the Braves. Mm-hmm. I would criticize them. It was just, you can't do that. You can criticize the team you root for. You could hate certain players on the team. They're not coming into your house. They're not like part of your family. You don't have to buy in 100%. There's nothing inconsistent. Was saying, you know what, I'm going to root for the Cleveland Browns, but I would really wish they didn't have Deshaun Watson. And actually, I hope he gets sacked 15 times in the first game this year. A
0: little hard to root for the Browns, but also hope that the quarterback gets yeah. That that,
1: <laughs> that's harder in in uh, football than it is in other sports. I'll, I'll grant that it's hard to root against the quarterback and the point guard or something like that in those sports. In baseball, it's easy to hope one pitcher stinks.
0: But to your point about you know the the, the Braves and and uh, native iconography, we have the Guardians issue, and I saw the same kind of thing on Twitter and elsewhere of these people saying no. Nobody's going to go to these games because they changed the name. And I've been looking, and it, it, it appears that the the baseball team in Cleveland is doing pretty well.
1: They're they're doing just fine. If they, you know, what's going to cause attendance to go up and down is whether they're winning and losing, whether they're spending money on players or not. Uh, if Jose Ramirez stays in town with a big contract like he just signed, there's going to be happiness among the Guardians fan base. If they lose 112 games next year, there's going to be sadness. The, the stuff you hear floating around the sides, like the name and, and the logo and all that kind of stuff, that's all just noise.
0: So much of the critique of fandom in this book, you know, predictably right it f- focuses on on men's sports right and mm-hmm. uh, women's sports you know do come up here and there in the book but but it's not the focus since so much of our our public health life is gendered i wanted to just ask you if you've thought a little bit about how this kind of discrepancy this this parity problem between what we focus on i mean women's sports there are a lot of very passionate wnba fans um and there are great women's sports out there and every time the olympics roll around there's a little bit more focus on these fantastic women athletes but you know when you think about fandom how much of this is wrapped up in this this critique of men and masculinity and the kind of way our society elevates them?
1: I think, you know, there's always a preference for the status quo, especially in sports. Sports overall is a conservative business. And the idea that sports are for men, not women, has held far longer in sports than it would in any other arena. Um, So you've got that going against you to begin with. You've got a very, very late, relatively speaking, investment in certainly professional women's sports. Uh, It wasn't really until the 90s that you started to see it with uh, the WNBA, Um, and then much later with, you know, soccer and hockey leagues. Um, So it's a late start kind of a thing. And we also in sports tend to, you know, gravitate towards the establishment. Baseball's been around for 150 years, the WNBA has been around for 30. So that's what we care about. I think the biggest factor right now in women's sports not capturing the imagination the way it could is media. I I say that as a person in sports media. uh, So maybe I'm overly focusing on what I know about. But there's this sort of circular reasoning that happens. Uh, And I remember it when I used to work for a a national media company for many years. The conversation would go, we don't cover that sport as much, or we don't give it as much real estate on the front page or whatever, because no one cares about it. And, you know, well, no one cares about it. Why? Well, it's because they're not seeing it, or they're not hearing about it. It's not part of the conversation. There's also this thing you see with ESPN. It's a great example with ESPN. They have gone at various times of having WNBA broadcast rights and not having it and back and forth. The media will promote what they have to promote. And so if it's not on a national TV deal or something like that, you're not going to hear about it. Um, If you were giving Inc., to women's soccer which by the way in this country is a hundred times more successful than men's soccer by any measure I mean these are like the best athletes in the world and we only tend to hear about them around World Cup or Olympic time if you gave the sort of ink to them that their quality uh, dictates it would be a very very different conversation Um, I think that's a huge part of what happens with women's sports is fans fans will go to what they think is good and they're not told that it's good or informed the way they should be I want to ask you a little bit about the company
0: that sports franchises keep, you know, in the book, you do talk about sports betting. We did an episode a little bit back on the impending changes with sports betting and DraftKings logos on the field. I mean, you, you watch ESPN and it's, it, you know, instead of just uh, stats, you're looking at, you know, uh, Vegas odds. You know, this seems to be the way many sports are going.
1: We we last night, we were just talking before we started recording here. As we're recording the night before, the New York Mets came back, uh, beat the Philadelphia Phillies in the ninth inning after being down by six runs. A huge, huge comeback, the kind you might see every five or six years maybe in baseball. Uh, I was reading the game story about it this morning. Uh, I think it was the Associated Press game story. And it was a third-sentence thing that was – Vegas had the odds of a Mets comeback at that point as 60 to one. I'm like, that, who cares? I mean, if you had money on the game, you cared. But that's now becoming part of the mainstream coverage. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. It's 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 not in the background. It's not a secondary thing. It's becoming primary. And now it's even primary to the revenue streams of these mm-hmm. teams. So, you know, there are clear public health implications to gambling in our society. Um, you know, but, but I want to ask you a little bit about how you think about that relationship. You do talk about it in the book. But, you know, could you expand a little bit on, on how you see that developing and what it means for sports down the line?
1: I, I think it's going to fundamentally change sports substantively, not just what surrounds it. Uh, for, for years and years, sports and sports betting were, were enemies. And for good reason. I mean, we had the Black Sox. Uh, we, you understand how, on a very basic, simple level, how sports gambling can theoretically corrupt sports. And Pete Rose. Yeah, for, Pete Rose, Ohio. everything else. Yeah. yeah, all that stuff. And the only reason why the sports leagues have embraced gambling is because they don't want to be left behind since since it was legalized in 2018 by the Supreme Court, uh, you know someone is going to make money off of it. So why not them? So immediately your competitive uh, integrity principles are thrown to the side because there's money to be made. Uh, everything flows from there. Uh, do I think that people are going to fix games or something like that? It's very unlikely. Mm. Uh, but the way that the revenues for gambling are starting to develop, it's not about game outcomes. It's about individual things that happen in games. Um, Micro betting with your phone is going to be a big thing where you watch a three-hour baseball game, and you could theoretically make 130 bets because of what's the next pitch going to be, mm. who's going to get the next hit. Um, sounds like an awful existence. Oh, God, it's terrible. I, and the whole thing is it it's... It, is completely geared towards exploiting addicted gamblers. Uh, the numbers that I've seen recently, and I'm sure they'll develop as the as the market matures, is something incredibly crazy, like 90% of all money gambled are gambled by like 3% of bettors or something <laughs> like that. The whole idea is to mine addicted gamblers and create new ones. Those are the people. You and me, if we just wanted to put $5 on the outcome of a game next weekend, that's pretty harmless, but that's not who they're they're aiming for. Um I think that we've already seen how sports media is starting to cover sports differently because of gambling. There are entire shows dedicated to it. People, again, like I was mentioning in the women's sports example, people, they sort of get their idea and their talking points and their whole perception about what's going on in sports based on sports media, what's going on on talk radio, what's going on on ESPN or any of those things. Um, And if the focus is gambling all the time, that's what fans are going to care about. And if fans are caring about gambling, then the leagues are going to start doing things that cater to that. Uh, A a concrete example that I totally expect to see is Major League Baseball for several years has been concerned about pace of play and length of games. There's There's this tension there between uh, how long these games are lasting? How long last in between pitches? Um, they want to fix that because it's a more entertaining product if the game is faster. But we now have an incentive to make things last a little longer because you can get a couple more bets in between pitches. And there's this story: Adam Silver of the NBA was with Rob Manfred of Major League Baseball at a meeting a couple years ago. Manfred told this story to the media. I don't <laughs> know why he said this out loud. But he said, Silver looked at me and said, I'm paraphrasing here, but he looked at me and said, oh, you don't want to fix your pace of play problem. You've got the perfect sport for gambling Mm -hmm. because there's so much time in which to have bets lodged. You can't tell me that they're not thinking about that. When there's so much money to be made, if there's a way to cater the game better towards gambling interests, they're going to do it. And I think it's ultimately going to change the sports. Yeah, I mean, there's
0: obviously lots of corporate tie-ins, and this is a huge. And you really do, in your in the book, disentangle a lot of things that some of which I knew but didn't know enough about, and then other things that kind of blew my mind. One of the things that doesn't come up that I wanted to ask you about, especially as as a health policy person, uh, is is the kind of role of healthcare systems as the some of the preeminent advertisers. It seems like every team now, Ohio Health, or you know the the Cleveland Clinic in in Ohio and elsewhere. Uh, and, you know, I've done a little bit of research on kind of understanding how these relationships worked with the medical staffs of these teams. And there's a lot of interesting stuff to say. But I wondered if you if you've thought a little bit about the prevalence of the healthcare industry itself within sports.
1: I, I think, first of all, the guy you need to talk to about that is Brian Alexander, who you might have talked about. He's
0: been on the show. Yeah, yeah.
1: he's he and I. He's a friend of mine, um, Ohioan. Uh Talking about how the health systems have just become these giant corporations and things like that, and it's like anything else, right? Sports are going to go where they can get big sponsorship dollars, and there's a there's a sports washing element. We we see this mostly talked about with like European sports and things about how you know the Saudi regime uh, has bought you know Newcastle in the Premier League, and that's a way of like helping their image. And you see the same thing with like Abu Dhabi and Manchester City or whatever. But I think it happens on the corporate level too. If you're a big giant healthcare conglomerate who is uh, actually causing worse outcomes for people especially in rural areas but you slap your name on the scoreboard at a Toledo Mud Hens game that's about your image i mean no one's going out looking at an advertisement on a scoreboard at a baseball game and saying oh i'm going to go get some more ohio health right they they they're just associating it though with the sport and it's goodwill because it's a known brand And I think there's a big element of that. Sports does a wonderful thing for anyone associated with it, is that it makes people think of the sports when they think of it. Ballpark Franks or Farmer John Hot Dogs or whatever. Mm -hmm. For years and years, we've known that. Baseball Hot Dogs, Apple Pie, and Chevrolet was a song. Um, (laughs) If you could associate yourself with something that people love, people are going to love you a little bit more. And I think some some companies that uh, might not be all that lovable in the abstract uh, are doing that for a reason
0: so, you know, just on our way out the door here, you know, what's the reaction to the book been? I noticed at a few points, you think that, you know, maybe there'll be some people who will say, come on, like, you know, I mean, you're aware that this is not going to be just the, the, the warmest welcome for this kind of a critique. But what kind of feedback have you gotten so far?
1: Well, I, I have said... From before it even got published, I said, this is a manifesto. This is not going to be... a." a, And it is, like you said, it's a quick read. This is something that you could read like in an afternoon by the pool or whatever and just get the idea from some crank who's ranting about this stuff. Um, I've gotten a little bit of, lighten up, it's just sports, don't worry about it. Well, that's great. I I like to hear that reaction. It's
0: hilarious because that's kind of your point.
1: Yeah, right. (laughs) I'm like, hey, if that's your feeling, wonderful. You probably are pretty healthy when it comes to sports. You don't need this book. Um, The overwhelmingly positive response that i have gotten have been from people who have had a problem with sports but haven't been able to put their finger on it and and i've gotten a lot of thank you for giving me permission to not care about the cincinnati reds for a while yeah um, And that's kind good example. Of, yeah, way. right. Yeah. Well, yeah, they, they disinvested in the team. They stink. They're probably going to like maybe challenge the record for the most losses in a year. And I just the other day had a, a fairly prominent Reds fan who has a big social media following saying, thank you. I felt uncomfortable for a long time. But this sort of like gave me mental permission. And it's not like I'm saying anything crazy or outlandish or super insightful. I think it's just one of those things of pointing out the obvious. You don't have to do this, mm-hmm. and so to the extent I've gotten some good feedback on it, it's been that, and I, I don't think I've gotten a lot of negative feedback uh, too much. I think I, I sort of am the person that if you f- seek me out on Twitter and start talking crap to me, I'll talk crap back, and people don't like that, so maybe that's why I might self-select for a for a praising audience.
0: You know, I, I always appreciate those moments. So you know, uh, as, as a hockey fan, um, you know, I'm genuinely sad when the when the baseball season ends, uh, and. Um, as a hockey fan, you know, I am sad when the hockey season ends usually too, but also I've learned that that's my moment to say, Oh, I got some time back now. And what can I do? And there's this almost sort of open sea in front of me of like, now I, you know, I got a little bit of time back to do it for myself, but I heard a a commercial on, on the radio that said something like the time between games can be excruciating for a sports fan. And I thought, wow, that's, that's really sad.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I it cuts it both ways I guess. For the most part I would say, yeah, that is sad. It's like I, I I view sports and I've come to view sports, even though I write about baseball for a living, like five days a week. I view sports as an entertainment. I view something as we do it, then it's over. And then we go on with our lives. It should be, I think, that sort of thing. Um, but there are times, especially when your team's going well, uh, when you're really invested. Yeah, you are waiting for the next game, and that could be okay. Yeah. But uh, if it's excruciating because, oh, what are they going to do to me next? Or, oh, I have put everything in my life to the side because all I care about right now are the New York Jets. <laughs> Imagine doing that. Um, you know, that, That's that's what I'm trying to get at in this book.
0: Well, the book is Rethinking Fandom, How to Beat the Sports Industrial Complex at Its Own Game. And Craig Calcaterra, thanks for for taking the time to talk with us.
1: Thank you for having me, Dan.
0: My many thanks to Craig Calcaterra for joining us on the show. As always, we've got oodles of links and background material in our show notes at prognosisohio.com and wcbe.org. You can also learn more about Craig and his work there, including his daily baseball newsletter, which I couldn't recommend more highly. While the baseball analysis is first rate, it's also great to read a sports analyst whose social justice and progressive commitments are front and center. While you're at prognosisohio.com, you might also want to go back and listen to my episode with Rob Moore as well. That's the one I referenced in my intro. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. I received editorial and production support from Trish Mayhorn. The music was produced by Kyle Rosenberger. To learn more about Prognosis Ohio and to check out an archive of past episodes, please visit our website at prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. We'll be back in your podcast feed soon with an episode about one of the most pressing and dire crises we have here in Ohio. In the area of child and maternal health, we're going to be talking about infant mortality. So make sure you're subscribed. Thanks for listening and please be well.